Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. In this episode, we're going to learn about the unique journey of a young immigrant that lived and worked in three different countries, where in the process, he discovered his desire to succeed in life. How he learned the skills that he needed to go from special education classes to giving the commencement speech at his college graduation to entrepreneur and CEO of his own companies and how that can benefit you. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. This is The Thing About an Immigrant to CEO. My guest on this episode is Colin Thompson. He's a Canadian-born Jamaican. He's the founder and CEO of Oligai Enterprises in Shanghai. It's a business consulting company focused on coaching, training, and blockchain technologies. He specializes in personal development, diversity, and career coaching, and teach and helps you to reach your goals, your dreams, and your desires. Welcome to the show, Colin. Hey, Michael. Thank you for having me. It is a, a bright, not bright yet, but it's a nice, nice warm morning here in Shanghai. Uh, I touched a little bit on your background. Can you share with me just a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. As you mentioned, I'm Katie born Jamaican. Um, my family, interesting, my family are double immigrants. Uh, my, my family's from Jamaica. And, and if you've been to Jamaica or you know about Jamaica, Jamaica is a very beautiful country. The people are beautiful. It's a great place to spend time. The economy, though, is really built on tourism. And it's very hard for a company, for a country, excuse me, to really be able to uh, give their citizens opportunities when you're based on when your when your economy is based on tourism. So many moons ago, my 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 father, my mother, and and their their siblings decided to leave. And for most people who leave Jamaica for a better life, they go to two places: either North America or to Europe. So my family was part of the, the migration to North America. We first went to Canada, and then we immigrated again to the United States. And um, I got to say, it's been a, I spent the vast majority of my life in the U.S. Great experience, great time, great country. Uh, these days, <laughs> a lot of it's a very interesting country, but a uh, great country. And then I did get here to China. And of course, there's so much that happened between all those times, which I'm sure we'll get into. So I call myself a, a double immigrant. And it's interesting. I spent so much time growing up in the U.S. For a lot of the years, I forgot I was an immigrant. You know, you, you hear about these people trying to move to the U.S. And I forgot that I did also. But luckily, over the last eight, probably 10, 12 years, with so much being made of immigration globally, I remembered that, hey, look, you know, I am, I am an immigrant myself. My family was built on this. So I have very very interesting views on immigration and, and, and people really trying to better their lives. Yeah, it's kind of a changed world, especially the last few years in the political environment that's here that um, has changed what immigration means here, which is personally, from my own opinion, I think it's uh, kind of very sad because we all come from immigrants. When we look at it, my great-grandparents on my father's side immigrated here, so they're not that much distant than me. Yeah, I, I tend to look at this on a global scale now because if you think about uh, North Africa, a lot of immigration from North Africa to those European spots, France, Italy, Greece, um, a lot of countries there doing a lot of things, you know, Germany, a lot of things in support of immigration and then realizing, hey, you know what, you know, the the the, 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 the too much coming in. Uh, what, what, what I mean by that is it's impacting how that country can take care of their own citizens. And so it's really 
been a a challenge for uh, myself just to look at it and stay neutral. I do stay neutral, but it's been a, it's been a challenge. A lot of people think immigration is just people from South America, Central America trying to come up to the U.S. But no, this is a global, this is a really global thing. That's interesting, actually. That's kind of, how long have you been in China? I've been in China 12 years now. 12 years. Are you considered a resident there? How does that, I know like here in the U.S., when somebody comes from outside and they come here to work, they have to get like a special visa and things like that to work here. And some of them are, are my brother-in-law was from Italy, for example, when he first moved here and he was a resident alien. How does that work where you're from? Yeah, so oh, right. very, very great question. I'll tell you something. I got a phone call last week from a close friend here in China who is from Rwanda. His wife is Chinese. He's been here in China for about, I want to say, about 15 years. He went to university here and stayed here. He just got his uh, green card, permanent resident card, uh, last week. And he is the only person I know who's a foreigner who has that card. Now, he was able to get it because his wife is Chinese and he's been there for a long time. So it is impossible. It's impossible for a non-Chinese person to become a citizen. But you can become a permanent resident either through marriage or through having what we call a special talent. Uh, maybe you're a scientist. Maybe you, you have, you know, you know something and they want to keep you here so so, so you can help. Help them help them build, um, but typically it's very hard to get a permanent residence card. Um, I have a because I have a business here uh, and I do work here. I do have a work visa, so I'm able to you know redo that each year. Um, even though now in I can't say 2020, now in 2020 um, things are getting harder. You're finding a lot more foreigners. Um, well, I'll say this: when I came here 12 years ago. A lot of the multinational companies had um, they would they would bring foreigners in to hold the leadership positions. Now, the Chinese have the have the talent in house to have the leadership positions. So you're seeing not as many opportunities for foreigners here. Um, COVID nineteen caught a lot of foreigners off guard because they were home on vacation and could not get back into China. So China is changing, and due to some political things which we don't don't have to get into. Um, it's it's very it's hard now for foreigners to come in, and uh, it's hard for foreigners to stay here now. So things have changed, but hopefully, in the next few months, few years, things will settle down here. Is it safe to ask you what it's like living in a, a COVID environment, especially because you know we find that it originated in Wuhan, China? Yeah, I. I put the question back on the people living in the U.S., living in Canada, living outside of China, because I'll tell you what, Michael, there is no COVID environment here. Now, from January through January, February, March, April, we were in a COVID environment. I can tell you that things definitely changed here. Things were shut down. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do that. You had to. We didn't have to wear a mask, but they recommended you wearing a mask. And in China, if they recommend you, you wear a mask, Everybody wears a mask, right? So for about three and a half months, we were definitely in that. But since I would say since May, things have been really back to normal. So I look at my when I talk to my my, my friends back in the U.S. Um, even last night, just hearing what what what's taking place there with education and whatnot, it is it is tough. So I say to myself when I go outside now, no mask. I don't even 
the only time I think about COVID is when I look at the news. Sad, it was sad to say, but quite frankly, I'm glad it's not here anymore because it was tough here. So um, I'll put that question back on you guys. You know, what's the life? You guys are veterans now going through COVID. Oh, this is this is amazing. It you know it's affected us personally. I have it myself. Uh, luckily, I was not hospitalized with it. My niece had it really bad. She had it worse than I did. My uh, her husband had it. Um, he got it from a colleague that went to, that, that worked in the same crew that he had worked in, and then my great niece, their old, uh, youngest daughter, actually got it. My sister's mother, my sister's, my brother-in-law's mother died from it. Oh wow! So we have a personal connection to um, COVID nineteen and the effects that it has on us. We, I am considered um, at risk because of a couple of different factors. I've got severe rheumatoid arthritis, number one, and number two, over a certain age. And because of both two things, I really have to pay attention to where I'm going, what I'm doing, and wearing a mask and so forth. The And again, not turning this into any kind of a political environment, but the Maricopa County where we live, it's mandatory to wear a mask, okay? But it's not enforced. Right. So it, the mandatory doesn't mean anything because it's not enforced. Right. So, you know, you kind of pretty much take it into your own risk. So whenever we go someplace, you know, my wife <laughs> my wife said, I was like, well, let's go to the store. She said, no, I'll go to the store. You stay here. You know, well, let's go do this. Well, I'll go do this. You stay here. Because it's just, it's still very volatile, especially here in Arizona. It's, it's lowering. But, you know, we reached 200, 300. Uh, 230 or 240,000 people infected in a very short period of time. So it's just been, it's been uh, a challenge. My wife works, uh, they've had her at home, working from home, which is great. From our perspective, it's been great because, uh, you know, we get to spend more time together and she's, she's home all day long. Now, now when she goes back to work, the dog's going to be really, really sad. So am I. And Michael, you, you raised a very good point. You, you alluded to the fact that you don't know what other people are doing, for, meaning that you may wear a mask. You can take care of yourself. And one of the things that may be a little bit different than what took place globally and here in China, when the pandemic, well, at the time it wasn't a pandemic, it was very local. When this broke out here in China, nobody knew what it was. There was not much information. You couldn't really go, turn on the news and hear about how it's hitting another country. Everything was happening to us real time. Now, my wife at the time, back in January, my son was all of, my math is bad, all of five months old, I believe, five or six months old. Wow. So very, very young. Um, my wife went into high gear of her anxiety. And we agreed that, you know, we have no idea what takes place outside of our home. So, you know, as a, as a protector of the family, my responsibility was to go into protection mode and take care of the house, meaning I, we must do everything we can to make sure this thing, because it wasn't, it wasn't called COVID back then, it was coronavirus. This coronavirus does not come into our household. Now, luckily, due to the structure of the, of the government here and how instructions really come down from the high government down to the local, the local community, we knew that you go outside, Everybody, well, everybody's going to stay inside unless they're going out to get food or, or, or supplies. And it was very airy. You go outside and then Shanghai is 20 million people. You go outside and there's 10 people outside. It's very scary. Um, but we said that the only thing we can control is our environment. So we had a process for four weeks, four or five weeks. I was the only one who went outside. When I came back in, it's like I'm a surgeon. 
going through this major disinfection process, doing this, doing that. Um, but it worked. It worked. And it was hard for me to do in the beginning because sometimes I would say, let me just run downstairs. I'm not wearing a mask. There's nobody outside. And she'd sit me down and she'd say, you know what? Don't put us at risk. Yada, yada, yada. And I say, yeah, whatever, whatever. But in a few days, I said, okay, let me really do the right thing here. So, you know, I think that, you know, even in the U.S., people are, some people are protecting themselves, some people are not. But the only thing you can do is make sure you protect yourself and your family. True. That, that's, a, that's about the only way that you can assure yourself. And even when you do that, you can't always assure yourself because I got it. I had had surgery prior to that, and I was going to a physical therapy, and we think that's possibly where I possibly picked it up was going to physical therapy because we go in there, and and I had, uh, without putting blame, but um, it's the only place I had really been, you know, and they, I don't think they sanitized everything the way they should have sanitized right. everything after other people were using it. So that's how I got it. It took me five weeks to get over it, oh. almost six weeks. Well, first of all, congratulations so, on getting over it. Some people did. Thank you. Yes, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's it was a little bit of a journey. A little bit of a journey. Let's talk about some of your journey. You, I know that you had sent me some information where you in your college. Tell me about your college. Oh, so I went to Howard University in Washington D.C. and um, it's interesting. Howard is getting a lot of hype right now because uh, Kamala Harris um, is also graduating. We have a lot. Of, we have a lot of graduates from Howard University. One of the one of the proudest ones. Well, I should say the proudest one we have. But you know, Black Panther. Right, the actor. He was also a graduate. A lot of Debbie Allen, a lot of graduates from the university. My, you know, university experience was very interesting because I would I got into Howard on scholarship. Howard is one of the top academic schools in the nation. I got a scholarship for playing sports. So it was outstanding. Yes, it was outstanding. And I say it was life changing because prior to getting into Howard, sports in my whole life. And it wasn't until I went to Howard. And Howard is an HBCU, a historically black college university. And growing up in Louisville, Kentucky, you don't, you're not exposed to education that talks about African-Americans or black people. Uh, I believe in our history book, we had literally one page on African-Americans and it's just Dr. King. So really, absolutely not much, not much education there. So going to Howard really opened things up. And had I not I got an athletic scholarship. I would not have qualified to get to Howard. So I say Howard really turned my life around by giving me an opportunity for higher education and also helped me understand knowledge of self, learning more about the contribution that Black people have made to the planet. And I tell you, once you learn that, it's hard to go back to that small town thinking. That's amazing. I didn't that has never crossed my mind. Obviously, I'm not from the South. I grew up in Colorado, and I grew up, and then I live now live in Arizona. But my kids uh, have been exposed to more than that in in their elementary schools in Colorado and in Arizona, actually, in in the school system here. Do you think that's prevalent across the South, or is that prevalent larger, long, you know, more in more areas than that? Well, I'm going to avoid you and I having a. a, a intellectual argument on whether or not Kentucky is in the South, right? So <laughs> growing up, you know, growing up, people want to say Kentucky's in the South. And I say, well, first of all, I didn't want to be associated with the South, which is, which is neither here nor there. But we're right beside Indiana, right beside Ohio. But but it's definitely part of the Southern, you know, Southern... Um, southern mentality. Yeah, definitely part of Southern, southern. mentality. A absolutely. Now, if you talk to people from New York, anything below New York is South, right? <laughs> yeah. going back people from New York are completely different anywhere. <laughs> going back to your question, um, I absolutely 100% 
know for a fact that that is how it is, not just in the South, but but, but across across the country. If you talk to um, um, kids who went, who went to school in California, uh, Michigan, it's the same thing, especially when Black History Month came out. Black History Month, which is a great thing, what, what it did, though, it gave, it gave teachers the excuse to focus on Black history just once, once a year, which meant from outside of February, there wasn't really much focus on Black history. If you think about American history, back in when I was in, when I was in school in the 80s and 90s, there wasn't much American history that focused on Black history that teachers would, would be proud to talk about. They talked about slavery, but the nature of slavery is you're not going to spend hours and hours and hours talking about slavery because it's, it's an embarrassment. So if you think about it, they talked about Dr. King, the civil rights movement, a little bit about Harriet Tubman, but that was really it when they talk about American history. Now in science class, they would they would talk about some 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 inventors, some black inventors, um, which was good, but we really didn't get much knowledge, which is why when I got to college, I was shocked and felt like I had no idea all this was even possible because the, in high school and in middle school, they never they never educated us about this. Yeah, that's amazing. It, you know, and unfortunately. I have to say, unfortunately, that's amazing because this is the 21st century and you would think that in the 21st century, things would be more widely available. And my family is very diverse. I grew up with a different mentality than a majority of my family. On my father's side, I was taught that all people are equal, okay? I was taught that you and I are equal people. It, that there is no difference. Color, black, white, Asian, Latino, whatever it is, we're equal. My mother's side, and not saying my mother was this way, but on my mother's side, they're from Mississippi. Okay, Well, Mississippi, deep south, guaranteed their racial mentality, major racial mentality. I got in trouble for speaking out against them because my father taught me one way, and then I'd see something else from that side of the family, see? And it, without going into great detail, when we're not recording, I'll give you another story, but it, it is, it blew me away because I, I grew up in the 60s and I grew up during that racial tension. I watched a lot of this take place. I had black friends. I had Latino friends when I was growing up and I got chastised for it by other other individuals because I had black friends and I played with black, black kids. I played with Latino kids and I was white and they said, what are you doing? And I, I never, never really understood it because I was very young you know, five, six, seven years old. I was young. I still didn't get it. It's like, why? What do you, what's, what's the problem? I go home crying because they were yelling at me and picking on me and I'd go home and my, and my dad would say, that's just the way people are. You just need to overcome it. So I, I'm still appalled at what's taking place today. Yeah. And my, first of all, let me just, just thank you for sharing that story because a lot of people today don't want to expose that part of the past. So thank you for sharing that because that, that does take, um, a lot of honesty there. And let me say that I think over the past 10 years, even more than 10 years, I think things have changed in the education system. I think now you have more, um, you have the, the, the whole story, let me not say the whole story, but you have more more information and more, it's more, there's more black history being taught, whether that be black history from um, African-Americans or black or people from black people globally. But I do think that you're seeing that a lot. And you also have it coming from after school programs. You also have it coming from parents also. So in these communities, when we when kids go to after school programs, everything in there is teaching black history. And I think it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So I definitely think the education system has changed a bit in that aspect. Unfortunately, the country has taken a 
couple of back steps that hopefully we will remedy soon. But you know what? It's interesting because these the, the back steps. You know, uh, uh, this is this is this is going to be um. You know, first of all, when people have these, these anecdotes or idioms, right? Some idioms make sense. Sometimes you got to slow down and go forward, right? I forgot how it goes, right? But I think taking these steps, what's happening right now? If you think about, it, from my perspective, being being black, I have not seen the level of allyship ever in my life that I'm seeing right now. What I mean by that is I've never seen different races come together to to back up and support a single a single race of color before. No, sir, I have not seen that. So even though that things have 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 things started from ongoing injustice. I think now really seeing some change that's long time coming and it could not have happened unless somebody said, you know what, I'm tired of seeing this. And quite frankly, it would not have happened unless somebody who's not black said, you know what, I'm tired of seeing this. I'm tired of seeing you guys go through this. Let me become an ally, one of your allies and come up and support you. And I think that is tremendous because it has not died down yet. It's still. I, I agree with that. I agree with that. It's nice to see everybody, and and even in the Black Lives Matter movement, you don't see just African Americans. You see Asians and white people and Latino people. You see everybody from all walks of life. So, and I, and I appreciate that. You know, to me, that that to me makes me feel good on the inside. It does. <laughs> it's always nice when your soul feels good, right? I I, I agree with you. It's, it's always it's always that because when your soul feels good, it's sort of you want to pay for it or or make it contagious and have give somebody else that feeling also. Oh, exactly. And and so I appreciate what you said. That I think that's going to help people understand that we do have an opportunity to make a difference in somebody's life or many people's lives. So you had I understand that uh, part of your education journey, you came from uh, being in special education, and um, you gave your commencement speech at your college graduation. So tell me about that. How good did that feel? Well, it. it felt like validation. I'll step back, though. So when I moved from, let me paint the picture. So being in Canada, Toronto, Canada, with Jamaican parents, real Jamaican parents, meaning Jamaican accent, thick Jamaican accent, inside our house with Jamaica, outside the door of Canada. So every day we're in Jamaica. We moved from Toronto, black Jamaican parents, to Louisville, Kentucky, back in the early 80s. And it was such a different environment. I don't think anybody in Louisville had heard a Jamaican accent outside of Bob Marley. I definitely know they haven't heard a Jamaican accent face to face. So you're going from having these, these parents who are very proud of black people because they, they know how to succeed and school officials who say, wow, you guys talk so strange. Why do you talk so strange? Right. So I had a I had a more of a Canadian accent and I also have two speech impediments. I have a list, still have my list and I had a stutter. And, you know, going to going to education, the first thing they're going to do if you're a little different is put you in a special class. So they put me in a class for speeching, for speeching, for, for, for um, because they felt that my Canadian accent needed to be uh, rectified. They felt that my lisp and my stutter were things that you could work on in a special class as well. Uh, my parents didn't agree, oh. but, but when my parents came to school to speak to them, they said, we can understand these guys. They speak the strange language. So anyway, so they put me in that class and it was very embarrassing because on a daily basis, when we go into a certain topic for English, I would have to stand up, walk out of class and go to another class for another hour or so and then come back. And of course, kids, you know, where are you going? Why do you always leave every day? So it was very embarrassing, um, especially being the new kid. But I went through that and going from elementary school to middle school, one thing I noticed because I was highlighted saying I can't speak well, I really, 
established a love for public speaking. Um, you can say it started in church because when, when I saw the preacher up there preaching and people reacted to him, I'm like, wow, he can go up and talk to all these people. And and sometimes he's, his speech wasn't the best, but he, he could get it done. So I really fell in love with public speaking and made it a goal to to work on my ability to speak in public. And one of the best, my, my one of my favorite things to do to this day is to get up in front of a room full of people and talk. I, I love it. I don't feel any fear. I, I just feel, it makes me feel great. So me being able to go from that to speaking at my school of business graduation, I was senior class president. So senior class president has the responsibility, or I would say the privilege to give the, the fellow students the final address, the commencement address. So I was very proud to to give that address. That's an amazing achievement. That's outstanding. That's pretty cool. I, You know, it's interesting how people view other people in regard to, like they said, you were speaking a foreign language, basically, when you really weren't. You were speaking English. So when you first went into the special classes, that was in elementary school or, or middle school? Elementary school. Elementary school in Kentucky, is that first through sixth, first through eighth? Is it, how does that work? Five. One through five. Okay, and then there's a middle school, then the high school kind of a situation. So were you put in these classes through elementary, middle, and high school? Not in middle school. It was really through elementary school. Middle school, I went to a different different school, a different district, where I guess after three years in the U.S., my accent sort of softened, softened out, and um, I, I was speaking better. Even though I, I did get a lot of comments from, from other, other black students, why do you sound so white, you know? Right? <laughs> But um, yeah, so middle school, I was in 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 the regular class. However, at that point, I was I was I'm not gonna say I was shy, but I was definitely lacking the confidence because when you're, you know, when you're put into a special class, even when you go to to a new school, you still feel like you you you, you, you belong in that special class. So trying to compete, um, trying to uh, um, be as a, proactive in class. It, it just wasn't there. Yeah, I, I can understand that. So we'll fast forward to college. You gave your commencement speech. You have a business degree. Did you open a business or want to open a business or go to work here in the United States first before you immigrated to China? Oh, you know, first of all, thank you for that question because you, you see me on camera here. So you think I look young because I worked, I worked in, in the, after college, I worked for, gosh, 15, 16 years before I left. I graduated in 1995, and I left to go to China in 2008. So uh, a lot a lot of time in, in, in the D.C. area. But I, I'll tell you, I have a undergraduate degree in MIS, so um, information systems, and I'm at a double master's degree in supply chain and e-business, e-business. And what really, I would say, got me to China was working for IBM, and they gave me an opportunity to, to go abroad, which was planned. Was a plan. I plan to go abroad, and they, they helped me make that into reality. That's what I was going to ask you. What? Why China? Why did you go there? But you just answered that. Well, I, I think I yeah. I tell you how I got. There. I'll tell you why China. So my father always raised us to be citizens of the world. Um, he said, you know, you're not from one place. Before you settle down, get more experience. Understand that that what you're seeing here in the U.S. is great and wonderful. But there are different ways of doing the same thing. So, you know, to his credit, he had, you know, the Jamaica environment, Canada environment, U.S. environment. He always pushed us to get more experience. Um, my, I'm the youngest of six kids. So my older siblings, by the time I graduated college for a year, they were all married and whatnot. So they really didn't have the flexibility to go abroad. I always wanted to do that. So I, I made a mission. Um, actually, my mother passed away from cancer in 2000. In 2000. Sorry. 
three. And after that, you know, sometimes things happen to us and we take inventory of our lives and say, you know what, what am I really trying to do? Yada, yada, yada. Um, so I said, one of the things that I've always wanted to do was really get more into the motivation inspiration business, but I also wanted to really go abroad. So I decided to go back to school to get my MBA and use that to really, you know, springboard me into an opportunity. One of the best ways to go abroad is going through a, a, a company who can bring you there, help you with the paperwork and, and, and make it make it a smooth transition. So I was able to do that. That's a nice way of doing that, I guess. And why China? Um, why China? Sorry, you see why China? And the reason China is because that's where the assignment was. <laughs> It could have been. It could have been anywhere. It could have been anywhere. I would imagine. So, do you? Did you learn the language? Um, I am. I am pretty good. If you drop me in a parachute in China, I can. I can. I can. I'll be fine anywhere. I, I like to say. I could say, Michael. I like your shirt, right? But I cannot say I like the buttons on your shirt, right? I can tell you I like your shirt. But if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to a question you asked me about whether or not I started a business right after I graduated. I actually started a business while in university. And, you know, it's uh, it's interesting because I can speak about it now because I don't know how legal it was back then. But one way would be not loan sharking, not loan sharking, but providing funds for people who need it. What would happen is each semester after, you know, you apply your scholarship money, you get some money back into your bank account. And, you know, so let's say I had $1,000 left over. There were a lot of students who needed money for the weekend, you know, just want to go out and party. And I don't know how, but maybe they got paid the next week or, or whatnot. So I would give out these very little loan, like $50, $50, you know, on Friday. And if I don't get it back in one week, first of all, you're going to give me the monitor of your computer, okay? Or you're going to give me a hard drive. And for that one week, right, I'm going to hold on to it. If I don't get it back, then... It's mine. Now, today you can get a computer monitor very easily, but back then, no, sir. They were big, heavy ones. So, but I, I did that for, gosh, a number of years, and it was very profitable. It was very, it was very profitable. profitable. I don't know if it was, I'm quite sure it's not legal. It's not illegal, right? We'll call it a research project. Research project, right. This is back in, in the 90s, so it's been, been long enough. But that was really my first taste of what I would call business. Um, I, because I was doing, I ran it like it was a business. And it really taught me a lot about being financially independent because a lot of people who came to me for loans, it were the same guys every week, right? And I'm saying, come on, man, what are you doing? If you have money to pay me back, that means you have money, right, to not even have to get a loan. And I'm going to tell you, if you borrowed $50 from me, you're paying me back 60 And if you're late, ooh, it's going to go, yeah. So, you know, now, and I'm still here, so no, I, I didn't get in any trouble with it, but it taught me a lot about um, finances from, from I'd say, a good young age. That's an interesting way to learn finances. It also is an interesting way to teach people finances. Yes. Well, you know, university is one of the worst places for the financially literate to have an experience because from, from my first day on campus, and this is very different. Understand that when you're going to an out-of-state school, your first week on campus, your parents may be there the first few days and they're gone. You're 18 years old now. Once you go to the cafeteria or to the, to the main building, what do you have? You have Visa, MasterCard, Discover Card, all these different companies who, who love you, who love you. And I'll tell you what, when you're 18 and you say, wait a second, you're telling me I can get a piece of plastic my parents won't know about it. I can go out and buy things now. Gotcha. And a lot of kids never recovered from the debt that they got to credit card debt they got to in college. Never recovered from that. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. When my uh, youngest daughter went to college, that's the, one of the first things we did warn her about uh, in regard to that. And absolutely 100% they were there to hit her up 
mm-hmm. for credit cards. And she luckily, being a law enforcement officer, I was a little more strict with certain things. So she called me up and asked me, and it's like, no, <laughs> don't do that. And she was like, but please, no, don't do that. And she kind of at least listened. So that that worked out really well. Now, years later, when she's a full-fledged adult, then it's a different story. So that's for a whole nother podcast. Do you still work for IBM in China or do is it just your own businesses? Now I'm, I'm thankfully doing my own business. And I say thankfully, let me first give props to IBM because IBM allowed my life to change. They brought me over here to China. I worked with them for a number of years, 13 years. And I got to say the people who I worked with there, great people, very intelligent people, very caring people, um, especially here in China, where you meet a very diverse set of co-workers from India, from Europe, from South America. I had a great time with IBM. What made me want to leave IBM, and let me not say want to leave IBM because I would have stayed, but my job was moving cities from Shanghai to Beijing. And my wife and I decided we're not moving from Shanghai to Beijing. But I'll tell you, Michael, one, I'll say, I'll say life-changing, maybe I use that term too often, but I remember telling my wife, my manager who was in the U.S., he was a very good guy. He gave us heads up. Colony, in six months, things are changing. A lot of jobs are moving, yada, yada, yada. I told my wife that day, I said, honey, in about six months, things are going to change and I don't want to apply for a new job. I said, I think it's time I really went for what you know I want to do. Her response was, go for it. And Michael, I got to tell you, that was a blessing because if, if you know if, if you know anybody who wants to sort of say, you know what, we're getting a nice, nice, healthy paycheck every month. And going forward, we're going to say, you know what, forget the paycheck. Let's just go out on a whim. Let me, let me try to live a life by design by going into my dream. And them saying yes, that's, that helps tremendously as opposed to saying no. Now you have to try to convince them to, to trust you. So that was um, a, a great experience. And um, I'll, I'll tell you very briefly, I was with IBM, I was doing a number of different roles. I was doing, at the time, I was a process consultant, doing a lot of process work, helping people to really be more, be more lean. Um, I was also being an agile coach. At the time, I was recruited to be a internal internal coach, coaching leaders and whatnot. And I've always been one to try to motivate and inspire people. And that's a great, but the only problem is, Michael, I can motivate you on Monday. I, and I'm pretty good. So you'll be motivated Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. By Thursday, not so much. Friday, Saturday, you're back to your old behavior. Coaching was a piece that allowed m- myself and a person to stick together and help them through achieving their goals. So when I learned about coaching, it was like an aha moment. And I said, well, I've been smart with my money. Um, I'm not going to wait for something negative to happen to make me reflect on life. I'm going to go forward with this now. That was 2017, 2018, 2017. And I haven't looked back. It's been an interesting journey. So so now I'm doing full-time coaching, doing some training, and a lot of lecturing, a lot of uh, motivational I was going to ask you, what was the driving force to opening your life coaching business? And, and that pretty much answered it, I guess. Yeah. And, but let me share one thing. Um, what really gave me the, the confidence to do it? It's when you're working with individuals. Now, with IBM, we're always producing software. How can we produce better software? And software does help the planet. But I tell you, there's nothing like talking to a leader, talking to a manager, talking to a team member, and them sharing with you some of their goals, dreams, desires as it relates to work. And you talking them through it and them having an aha moment and them seeing something in themselves. And then, you know, four weeks later, they come back to you and say, you know, Colin, when we talked, that talk changed me. And ever since that, that conversation, something happened to me. And now I'm going for this. Or and helping somebody really say to themselves, you know what? They want to now live a better life because think about it, Michael, if you improve 
your life. Odds are the life of your wife, your kids, everybody around you improves also. So being a part of their story really motivated me. And I said, you know, again, uh, and this is interesting because COVID, a lot of people said COVID, COVID really made me reflect on life. People around me have been dying. People are sick. Now I really want to understand what my, what my purpose is. I say, don't wait for that moment to happen. So I want to really go into my thing on a positive note. A lot of people change careers and do this based off when something negative happened. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do it based on something positive. So I made that that transition shift a few years ago. And it has not been easy. Michael, let me tell you, it has not, it's still not easy, but it is fulfilling. Got to make you feel good inside when somebody does have an aha moment, or you do change somebody's life, because obviously there are people out there struggling, they don't know which way to go, or how to reach out in order to move forward. And when somebody helps them to move forward, positive right. is much better. Absolutely. Yeah, much better. Earlier, you mentioned something, and maybe you can help me understand. You Do you still work in the blockchain cryptocurrency arena? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So can you help me maybe understand a little bit about what that means, that terminology? What does that mean? Yeah, so, so blockchain is the technology that underlies cryptocurrencies. And when most people think about blockchain, uh, mistakenly, they just think about cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, um, that, that sort of thing. But the blockchain, blockchain is really a ledger that keeps track. Of, of transactions is cryptography i can't say this word it's, it's hard it's 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 hard to um penetrate these transactions meaning that they can't be changed uh, and every time you have one transaction the next one that's attached to it is built from a previous transaction so, so it's, it's encrypted it's encrypted if you were to change anything in one record then the chain that's connected to it would not match so it's very, very hard to, to, to change. And it's very, very safe. And it's decentralized, meaning no one person owns it. So when you think about the blockchain, blockchain allows you to really be able to trace transactions. So if you think back a few years ago in Walmart, Walmart had an issue with the lettuce, I think it was. There was some sort of salmonella or something in the lettuce. It took Walmart, I want to say, six weeks to trace that back. And they had to literally stop selling lettuce in all the stores in certain states because they did not know the cause of it. What blockchain does, especially in inventory, blockchain says, you know what, we can trace this back to the source. So the same thing happened again with Walmart, and they were able to trace back to the source, I think it was two days. And, and, and that was the sal salmonella, salmonella, salmonella right. poisoning. Right. So one of the things blockchain, it doesn't allow you to have the traceability back to the source, and which is unprecedented. That's one part. But most folks want to hear about the cryptocurrency part, right? Should I invest in Bitcoin? You know, where where is this going? And um, we, I started, started, I joined an organization probably two and a half years ago where we had a, a project, a coin. We've since pivoted to another business. And I got to say, it's right in align with what, what I'm doing as far as coaching. We have a educational platform where we provide assessments, training, and coaching. And the thing that, that's key about this and we have our beta version that's going to be ready in the next few months, is that these assessments allow people in the 21st or 22nd century, whatever we're in now, to really understand what skills are needed for the job of tomorrow. A lot of people have been displaced through COVID-19 as far as employment. And one of the things that we now need to do is understand what skill sets do they need to build up, okay? Not, not where are you strong. 
Okay, where must you build up? And there's two sides. There's hard skills, technical skills, and soft skills. So these assessments help identify those skills and then provide training to help build those up. So we have um, what I would call an an end-to-end platform that is very, very timely for the needs of people today. That's part of the the blockchain side. And I say blockchain blockchain side because, again, blockchain is the underlying technology. And what, what happens here is once a student goes through the process, they get a dig- digital credential. You know, their resumes are going away. Now it's about credentials. Can you can you show somebody that you went through this study, this, this program? And those credentials are in the blockchain, meaning they can never be altered, they can never be changed, and they're owned by you. So, Michael, if you want to get your transcripts, you have, you have to contact university, you have to do this, you have to do that. Same thing for your medical records. But this, you can own, and you can, you can identify who can have access to these credentials. So if you're going for a job interview, you can give somebody access. They can get the whole list of your, your credentials or whatnot. So that's on the, the the blockchain side. Now, we do also have a token that goes with this. For, for example, more trainers who provide training. Students, the more training they take, the more coin they get, and they can, they can turn that into fiat, turn it into cash. So there's a, there's a lot of um, excitement coming down that pike. So it's blockchain, it's education, and it's cryptocurrency. That's amazing. I mean, here in the U.S. alone, there's still 35 million people out here without jobs and having to change careers because they're left in the dark at the moment. They don't know where to go. Yeah, if I can, if I can say one, if any of your listeners are in that situation, let me give you, I wouldn't call it a piece of advice, but let me just share some of my thoughts with you. Right now, today, you need to start gearing up for the job hunt. Once the gate goes down, everybody is going for the jobs. And everybody and their mother are going to go for the same job you're going for. So the question is, if you and your neighbor are going for the same job, what makes you a better candidate than your neighbor? And a lot of times that is taking some training. Right now, if you're at home, this is the perfect time to go online, take some training. doesn't matter from who. Take some training. Understand what your gap, skill gaps are and fill those gaps because if resumes are equal, it's going to come down to interviews. It's going to come down to those little things that you have over your your neighbor. And I say your neighbor because your neighbor is the competition. Bottom line. Do the, you offer the training, or it, you have cooperation with others so that that credentialing system goes within your blockchain, so that the access does anybody have access, or you can give somebody access to that? So right right now we have our assessments that are up. We're building out our training modules. So we're going to be having it's similar to you to me. We're going to have individuals who have who have created training be able to port the applications with the training package on our platform. So um, that, that that beta version is coming in end of this year. But for the, for the digital certificates, that is separate. Once you go through a training, you're you're awarded the certificate, and it lives and breathes in your blockchain. So if anything was ever to happen to our platform, you still have access to it. It becomes fully owned, fully owned by you, which is a, a tremendous change. And blockchain allows that. I mean, if you think about next four or five years, the same thing may happen to your medical record. You own your medical record. People don't know this. You own your medical records. But it's a pain to get them. It's a pain to get it. It's a pain to get it. And so yeah. if you had access to it and you can make it available, if you're going to go see a new doctor, you can give them a little URL and they can get access to your to your record, right? So you have full control over your medical records. That's outstanding. Even with medical records alone, we took care of my wife's father who had Lewy body dementia. This is kind of a side note in regard to all of this, but we as an example, um, with regard to medical records, we took care of him at home here. So when we brought him into the home and uh, we became his caretakers, I had to keep a folder, a thick folder that was about two inches thick of his medical records that I would continue 
to make copies of every time we went to go see somebody. And it was, where's the folder? Uh, is the folder over here? Is it in the desk drawer? Where's the folder? Or we'd get there and they'd go, well, this copy's not good enough. We need another one. It's like, well, I can't get you one right now. You're going to have to wait. So I have to go back. We have to fill out the little form. We have to put it in. And then, then they send it to us and or sometimes in some of the occasions we got to wait for it, but very, very, very rare. It really was a hassle. And, and, and that was, that was real time situation. And we went from doctor to doctor to doctor with him with different aspects of his medical journey. So from a personal perspective, yeah, that's brilliant. That is needed is something that really could enhance somebody's life, I think, make it easier for them. Yeah, when you're caring, when you're caring for, for, for people, the last thing you want to worry about are medical records. Because when that becomes a burden, it means the attention is now being taken away from their health now on the, onto the paperwork, which is, which, is, which is not the way you want to go. Well, exactly. And then the thing about the job market going to be coming open here pretty soon, obviously what we're going through right now is not going to last forever. And you are correct. Those gates are going to open. My youngest daughter was unemployed from March up until she just finally got a job. We moved her from Tennessee to California. It took her a very long time to get the job. And she had to go out of the state and move, uh, what, 2,500 miles away in order to take the job. Yeah. And Michael, let me, let me clarify something. There are jobs out there, right? Companies are hiring. Granted, not like before, right? The job will come back. Said When that gate goes down, folks, do not wait until that gate goes down. Okay. Get a head start because the best thing that you can do is again, equip yourself as far as skills, equip yourself and then get out there and make sure you let everybody know you're looking for a job. Tell them exactly what you're doing because, Michael, one thing we know is opportunity really comes from applying for online at post. It comes from your network. The more people that know exactly what you're trying to do and what your skills are, the more likely when they hear something, they'll think about you. So you want to announce to the world, I am looking for this kind of job. If you know anybody, let me know. Don't be shy. It's not the time to be shy, right? So bust down that gate. Understand what your skills are. And let people know what, 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 you, what you're skilled and what you're looking for. Tell me about your coaching business. So I started my coaching business about two and a half years ago when I left IBM. And one of the main reasons why I wanted to continue in this in this, this area, when when you're a corporate coach, meaning that you're hired or you're working for a company and you're coaching employees, you have to be honest. Right now, even though you're coaching individuals and teams, your responsibility is to coach those individuals and teams to help the company be more competitive, make more money, which is great, which is great. However, what you may find sometimes is that when, you, when you're able to establish what I call a true coaching relationship with an individual and they share with you what their goals are, sometimes those goals might conflict with the goals of the company. So, you know, me being who I am, I, I would definitely follow who's paying me, which was the company. But when I had opportunity to go into business myself, I said, you know what, this opportunity to really be authentic and really make sure that you're helping people be the best individuals that they can be, helping them to do what, reach their goals, dreams, desires, or helping them to stop behavior that's not productive to them. So uh, again, with my wife giving me the, the green light, I, I took, I had taken some internal IBM coaching courses, but I wanted to take some, what I call 
do that old-fashioned training, meaning going to a long-term program. So I went to a six-month program to really teach me the fine art of coaching. Now, coaching is not regulated, meaning I don't have to have a, I don't, for example, if you're a counselor, you have to have a, um, a, I forgot what the word is, but you have to be certified as a counselor. Certification. Certification. You, you don't need that for coaching. Now, with coaching, you can be certified, you can jump through hoops. So I want to make sure that I went through the classic training because at the end of the day, I want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to do what? To help an individual improve their lives. So I went through the program. Uh, I finished the program in, in uh, March of 2018. And since then, I've been coaching individuals, in some aspects, coaching some groups. And I tell you, things really changed January, February of this year with COVID. Uh, things changed in that a lot, of, a lot of my clients said, here in China, said, Colin, we want to take a pause in our coaching because right now, our mind is on our family. And I felt the exact same way. You know, right now, it's hard for me to coach you by getting a new job or, or, or coach you how to develop uh, unshakable confidence when I'm worried about my, my family. So I put a pause in coaching, but I found two weeks later, those same clients and more clients, even outside of the U.S., started reaching out to me, outside of China, excuse me, started reaching out to me, asking me about COVID coaching. And I said, what is COVID coaching? And they said, well, you know, um, we're on home restrictions right now. Um, our home now isn't our home. It's our gym. It's our movie theater. It's our restaurant. It's our spa. It's, it's, it's everything. now. It's our work area. It's our school. And I'm finding it hard to be productive with my kids around. My wife and I, my spouse and I are having much more tension now. How can we, how can you, can you help, can you help us to make our time here better? And I thought it was COVID coaching. I call, I said, okay, I'll do some COVID coaching. And I got a lot of clients coming in, a lot of people who reached out to me for COVID coaching. But I'll tell you, Michael, what we found. There is no such thing as COVID coaching. And I'll, I'll tell you why. For a lot of people, the, the first impact was they, they found they're in a spouse who are having more stress and stress. And it was impacting the relationship. And I said, well, let's be honest. If you and your wife are having some issues now, odds are they were there before. All COVID does is magnify them. The same thing with not being able to be productive at work. The same thing with not with having issues communicating with, with your children. All these things existed before COVID, but COVID is just making them magnify, bringing them out. So we said, don't view this as COVID coaching. It's life coaching, right? It's life coaching. And now you have an opportunity because you are home with your wife, you're home with your kids. You now have opportunity to do what? To improve the relationships. So coaching people on, instead of saying, you know, I'm going crazy at home, how can you say, you know what, I'm looking to make this time at home while we have it the best that we can. How can we really, because now, how can we really improve our relationships? I'm going to put this out there to the listeners because they can't see you. I can. When you talk about this, I see your face light up and um, I can see your eyes light up and you are very passionate about this and helping people move forward. I can see it in your face and I'm sure they can hear it in your voice, but trust me, I can see it. That's pretty cool, actually. How does somebody get in touch with you if they need your help? Yeah. So in this in this day of, of social media, there are so many ways you cannot get a hold of me. Okay. But I'll tell you how to get a hold of me. You can go to my website www.oligye.com, O-L-I-G-Y-E.com, that's oligye.com. And once you go here, you can maneuver to reaching out to me. The, the, the great thing, especially now, everybody's heard of Zoom. We have all these applications. If you reach out to me, you can actually be on a call with me days later, face-to-face, uh, -face. well, not face-to-face, -face, but video-to-video. Right. There are not so many degrees of separation these days. So that way you can email me. You can make an appointment to contact me. You can also see more content about 
what I'm doing and what I'm about. And I think it's very important now that as people are, as people have had a conversation of, you know, what's my thing right now? If you have been impacted by COVID, if you have not been impacted by COVID, it doesn't matter. What is your purpose? And not purpose in life. Don't go that deep. What is your purpose right now? If you fast forward at six months and you say, okay, over the last six months, here's what I've accomplished. What is that answer? We are in August now. So go back, go back to what, March? Go back to February, March. What have you accomplished since February, March? And don't give me the, oh, we had the COVID thing. Look, I understand that. But what have you accomplished? Because some people are accomplishing great things right now. So, so, so if you want to really accomplish things and really go from having some ideas and thoughts to really having actions and steps, reach out to me. We'll have a conversation and we'll see if we can help you identify what your purpose is and then start moving towards that goal. you have any last words of wisdom you want to share? Last words of wisdom. Okay. You know, the, the, or, or, or we could rephrase that. You have any first words of wisdom? <laughs> well, you know, the, the podcast is called, you know, one more thing before you go. And when I think about what that means to me, it, it's two more, it's two things, right? Either somebody passing away and you want to give them a, a final message or somebody walking out the door and you say, Hey, before you leave. So as I'm about to walk out this virtual door here, um, I, I do want to just have one message to your to your, to your listening audience. Folks, if you're hearing this and you really have been, I'm not going to say impacted by COVID, but impacted by life, I hope that you are living a life by design. And what that means is living a life that you have structured. You know what your passion is. You know what you want to achieve in life, and you're going after it. Going through what I call life tough times, whether it be COVID, uh, racial discrimination, whether it be a bad relationship, whether it be lack of confidence, all those things don't matter. What matters is, do you have a plan to improve? And it is not that hard to improve. All you have to do is take a few steps and continuing to move forward. And, and I'm not even saying, you know, reach out and hire a coach. I'm saying do whatever you need to do to identify what your goal is, what your destiny is, and take action to reach that. One step, one step, one step. Now, if you don't know what to do and don't have the confidence in yourself, reach out to me, okay? I can help you do that. But more importantly is keep moving forward, okay? Don't give up on yourself. And I guarantee you, if, if you live a life by design, when it comes to that end day, you'll, you'll walk through that door or walk through the other door feeling confident and, and, and thankful that you live a life that, that you're very proud of. Thank you, Michael. Those are some amazing words of wisdom. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you being um, involved in this conversation and joining me here. I will put links to all of your stuff on my website, beforeyougopodcast.com. And again, this has been very enjoyable. It has been a pleasure to meet you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.